0: Welcome to JFK and the Enduring Secret. I'm your host, Jeff Crudell. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the podcast. Today's episode is episode 93. Think back a little bit. We've been wandering around in the autopsy for maybe 25 or 30 episodes now, and to be honest with you, I'm getting fatigued with the topic. I said it before to you, and I knew this would be the case. But the truth is, I knew this would be one of the most important, if not the most important, elements to address when developing this podcast and telling the story of the JFK assassination. I also knew how complicated it was and how fraught with secrecy, misinformation, and errors. Errors that had come with the passage of time and the coincident silence, as well as the lies that accrue after narratives are deliberately formulated and changed for whatever reason, and then repeated over and over and over again during that same time frame. In short, it was like entering a maze. I wasn't sure that if we entered that maze that we'd ever get out of it. Well, the answer is we will get out of it eventually, but not quite yet because there's still some unfinished business. I'm not promising anymore exactly when we're leaving this topic because to get to the other end of this maze, like I said, we still have to cover a few more important matters. At the end of the last episode, you heard the one private researcher, David Lifton, the one that did the trailblazing work around the idea that President Kennedy's body was snatched and placed into an alternative casket, and then at some point, the body itself was subjected to some form of surgery or alteration prior to the actual autopsy taking place. And these facts could only have been perpetrated by an element of our government because President Kennedy's body was only in the hands of the government during the critical time frames that are in question. The real issue here is that there is no clear, hard evidence of specific actions. Specific actions, that is, to alter the body. No one testified that they did that, or that they watched it occur, or that they even heard that it had occurred. Again, no one testified that it actually happened. Well, that's not quite true, but I'll get to that soon enough. There are still a handful of highly credible witnesses that we have to hear from, and a few stories in between as well, well, that are facts which are clearly stranger than fiction. The first of those witnesses is the primary subject of today's episode, and actually the subject of a series of episodes that we will now undertake. The witness is James Jenkins. Of all the men present that night, James Jenkins was clearly one of the most credible and capable, and outside of the doctors themselves, he was one of the men who saw the most and did the most during the course of the autopsy. He was one of the few who, afterward, truly went out of his way to avoid the limelight of the assassination story. First, because he was a good military man, and he followed orders, and he was genuinely worried that not following them would result in the court-martial that the military had so clearly laid out for those who dared talk about it. We know from our previous episodes that those secrecy orders eventually expired and were officially lifted around the 1978 time frame, right around the time that the House Select Committee on Assassinations began its investigation. Slowly, over time, many of the witnesses began to open up about what happened, that is, about what really happened, and what took place that night at Bethesda. Jenkins was like a crustacean. Hiding from prey deep underwater, this kind, soft, gentle man would occasionally leave the protective bubble that he had made for himself, that bubble that shielded him in his own life from really the dangers that were certainly inherent in being a central character in this part of the passion play that was the JFK assassination. Over his lifetime, Jenkins would occasionally give in to the exhortations of a JFK researcher and make comment or answer a question, only to retreat after the recipient researcher twisted Jenkins' words or took something out of context or otherwise did something to betray the trust of this humble man. It was very late in life before James Jenkins actually made a personal decision to write a book about all of this, and it would come about Nearly 50 years past the assassination. He did it because his wife urged him to do it. Had it been for other reasons, that is, primarily economics, it would have been done long before. Jenkins always knew how important this topic was to the history of this country. History that was, and still is, a critical input into understanding just who we are as a nation and who we were at that moment in time in 1963. There really was only one researcher over the years who gained the trust of James Jenkins, and his name is William Mattson Law. He's a fine JFK researcher who eventually wrote the book In the Eye of History. It's an excellent rendering of many things, including his articulation of aspects of the James Jenkins story. William Matson Law eventually went on to help James Jenkins write his own whole story on the event, a book that Jenkins wrote primarily by himself and was entitled At the Cold Shoulder of History. Not only does that book tell the story of That Night at Bethesda in more detail, but it also gives a sense of who James Jenkins was in life, and you get a real sense of this man's character and background. I think it mirrors what you will feel when you listen to his voice later in this episode. It's a wonderful book, and I've drawn from some of its chapters today as well. No discussion on this topic can be complete, though, without citing the wonderful work of Doug Horn in his series of books entitled Inside the Assassination Records Review Board. Mr. Horn has also done many related articles. Horn has done a marvelous job in synthesizing not only what key witnesses said, but what became known within the Assassination Records Review Board about these topics after the totality of the hearings that they conducted, and that he was an integral part of. And just remember, so many of those hearings and topics you heard right here on previous episodes of JFK, The Enduring Secret. Over the course of the next several episodes, we will read and quote extensively from Horn's work. Regardless, we owe a tremendous debt in this country and indeed on this podcast to David Lifton. It is true that in listening to David Lifton, I have advised you on multiple occasions that I was not personally in agreement with the idea that there was evidence of additional surgery or alteration of the president's body but I hope I was careful enough to say that there was no evidence of it. That's different than saying that all roads point to Rome. What do I mean by this? Well, it's very simple. There is very credible evidence indicating that something very wrong went on here. Let's start with the fact that the president arrived in a shipping casket, and he did not arrive in the ceremonial bronze casket in which he was initially placed into at Parkland. The evidence to me is clear that this happened. Why would the government do that? Maybe if it was, for some good reason, perhaps security concerns around the body? Then why haven't they admitted to that? Look, it might have been an odd admission, in retrospect, as the idea of someone desecrating the president's body in the aftermath was, well, let's face it, highly unlikely. But the point is that when the president showed up in an alternative casket, it doesn't take a rocket scientist to figure out that something more was going on. Period. In my opinion, that is unequivocally the case. So let me restate and be very clear. The conspiracy theorists believe that the body was snatched at some point, then placed in a regular shipping casket, and at still another point, additional procedures were applied to President Kennedy's body in order to obscure the forensic evidence and to ensure that there was only one conclusion that could come from what was left. And that conclusion would have to be that there was a lone gunman firing from somewhere up around the sixth floor of the school book depository, and therefore it was reaffirmation that Lee Harvey Oswald was the lone gunman and the lone assassin of JFK. Let me be clear here. I think there is clear evidence that the president did arrive in a plane shipping casket, And that is the focus of today's episode and several episodes that continue this wander into the topic. Where the problems start and end is that there is no real credible evidence that surgical alterations took place. You will hear some testimony from other witnesses, from others besides James Jenkins, that might support that theory. That is, that there was some sort of surgery applied to the head. Jenkins will tell you that he was there with the body most of the time and he saw no such evidence of that. At least not while he was there. There are some gaps in time though and we will address them. You'll hear another witness today in some of the audio. Hubert Clark was a member of the original honor guard that was assigned to carry the casket and deliver it from Air Force One to Bethesda. From him you will hear the astonishing fact that the entire Honor Guard shortly after that night at Bethesda, well, every one of them got new orders and were, out of the blue, suddenly shipped out to various locations across the globe, scattered to the wind with the obvious implication that they would not get a chance to talk amongst each other about what they had experienced and seen that night at Bethesda, or what any of them could potentially have suspected. Statistically, what were the chances that those men might all randomly be reassigned right at the moment just after this frighteningly sober event occurred and gotten orders prior to the scheduled termination of each of their existing current assignments to go halfway around the globe? If you're a betting man, you can see what the odds are here. This might be the one that you would concede and conclude like I have that something was rotten in Denmark on that one. Well, there is lots more to come here about the shipping casket, and more to hear directly from James Jenkins and Hubert Clark on the goings-on that night. But we must understand that the more from Jenkins is, well, precious more. He gave up very little to the public in 50 years, and in 2013, the year that marked the 50th anniversary of the JFK assassination, he would finally decide to be more in the public and attend the JFK Lancer Conference, a popular conference for those seeking the truth about the JFK assassination. That would be a start of a trail of evidence from James Jenkins that would eventually lead to what you are going to hear today. So, without further ado, let's listen to Episode 93 of JFK, The Enduring Secret. the evidence for two ambulances and two caskets will not go away. Military chatter aboard Air Force One made repeated reference to the need for a forklift to be brought to the right front of the plane, where the First Lady would depart. But Mrs. Kennedy left the plane with everyone else from the left rear. For those of you who follow this part of the assassination story, you know there is no footage of anything happening on the right side of the plane. Whatever did happen likely did not see the light of day. That's essentially the side of the plane which would have been behind where the passengers were exiting. More stunning was the HSCA's suppressed interview with Richard Lipsy, the military aide put in charge of moving the body from Andrews Air Force Base Bethesda. In 1978, Lipsy told HSCA interviewers that there had been two hearses and two caskets. You heard Lipsy's testimony on a previous episode of our podcast. According to Lipsy, Jackie Kennedy accompanied an empty casket into the front of the hospital, while the one with the body in it went around to the back where the morgue was. The House Select Committee on Assassinations made virtually no effort to follow up on this explosive story. It was not until the Assassination Records Review Board was born that the theory and the story would get serious legs inside of an official investigated body. Well, the years continued to go by, and it was now Thursday, November 21st, 2013, and Doug Horn noticed a tall, reserved, dignified, and almost shy man standing in the lobby of the Adolphus Hotel in Dallas, where the JFK Lancer Conference was being held to commemorate the 50th anniversary of JFK's assassination. The man that Horn had spotted was well over six feet tall, wore glasses, had white hair, and sported a well-trimmed, short, white beard that was impeccably groomed. And to Horn, This man had an air of quiet and seriousness about him that took Horn for a pause. Horn knew immediately who it was. James Curtis Jenkins, one of the two Navy corpsmen who served as autopsy technicians and assisted the Navy pathologists, Dr. Humes and Dr. Boswell, at President Kennedy's autopsy at Bethesda Naval Hospital on the evening of November 22, 1963. It was now 50 years later, and Horn was pleased to see Mr. Jenkins alive and looking so good, and yet surprised to see him attending a JFK research conference. Horn introduced himself and found that he was attending the conference with William Matson Law, one of the very few people in the JFK research community that James Jenkins trusts. William Law interviewed many of the autopsy witnesses and published his oral history of their interviews in the Eye of History. James Jenkins had a reputation for being reticent to discuss the JFK autopsy, and with good reason. He did not have a good experience when interviewed by two hostile and disbelieving HSCA staff members, and so he didn't trust any federal authorities, particularly since, well, because of what he himself witnessed at President Kennedy's autopsy. He did not concur with the Warren Commission's conclusions about a lone gunman firing from behind and no shots hitting JFK from the right front. That was a dog that didn't hunt with Jenkins. After the HSCA published its own report in 1979, confirming the Warren Commission's conclusions that Lee Harvey Oswald had done all the wounding of the limousine's occupants with shots from above and behind, he was even less well disposed toward the organs of authority in this country. Over the years, since the HSCA's report was issued in 1979, James Jenkins had agreed to appear on video before three different researcher-organized panels, consisting largely of Navy autopsy witnesses. But none of that footage had yet been aired in the format of a completed documentary. Horn had seen some of the raw footage from one of those interviews in which Mr. Jenkins was interviewed along with Paul O'Connor, the other technician present that night, along with some of the Parkland treatment staff, including Dr. Robert McClellan. And as a result, Horn knew that Mr. Jenkins had significant things to say about what transpired at Bethesda that night. After reviewing the footage, Horn would conclude that Jenkins was credible and responsible. Horn would go on to speak with Jenkins that day, and Jenkins would tell him that he was not seeking any notoriety at all, and that his sole wish was to sit quietly in the back of the room at selected presentations and just take it all in and observe. Horn honored his request and did not reveal that he was present. But James Jenkins at the conference was big news. On the afternoon of the actual 50th anniversary, William Law moderated a breakout event called Special Guest Jim Jenkins. As it turned out, James Jenkins began to open up at this session and had quite a lot to say about his recollections of the autopsy. And the audience was so interested in what he had to say that a special session was organized for later that night, in which Mr. Jenkins continued to discuss his recollections of JFK's autopsy. Unfortunately, neither of the two sessions were taped or otherwise recorded. But fortunately for history, Dr. David Mantic, an MD and a PhD, attended both sessions at which Jenkins spoke, and he took copious notes, something he has been known for for decades, whenever an autopsy participant takes the floor. You've heard me reference Dr. Mantic's work in prior podcast episodes. Those notes then became the basis for some of Doug Horn's work on the topic, some of which you'll hear later in these episodes. Then, in 2018, some five years later, Jenkins would again be in attendance and give his eyewitness account along with Hubert Clark at one of the breakout sessions at the JFK assassination conference. Fortunately, five years after that seminal participation at the JFK Lancer conference, The main session, now featuring Jenkins, was being recorded for history's sake. And that means you'll get a chance to hear James Jenkins and Hubert Clark tell their story of what happened that night in their own words. It will take us several episodes to wander through what Jenkins has to say, but it's well worth it. The third voice you'll hear is that of William Matson Law, the JFK researcher who established a long and trusting relationship with James Jenkins, and who accompanied them on the deos that day as a speaker. Let's begin listening now.
1: The uh, name of this presentation is What Really Happened at the Autopsy. So tell us, Jim, what really happened. No. (laughs) Tell your story. Before Before I start, I would just like to acknowledge all the veterans in the room. I still have it. And for those of you that have bone spurs, we'll save that for another day. But on this uh, auspicious occasion, as William has stated to you, the first time I met William and Phil Singer, who collaborated together to bring us together, after 51 years of not having spoken to any of the other members of the casket team, uh, my whole outlook on this Kennedy assassination was birthed to me by the government. I believed everything that the government had told us. And just so you know, that in my time in Washington, I probably have buried at least 350 individuals at Arlington National Cemetery. And for the most part, or being more specific, President Kennedy was my last funeral. And the very next day after we buried President Kennedy, I was awakened at 530 in the morning and was told to pack up, you're leaving. And I stated, well, it's not my time yet. They said, no, you're out of here. Unbeknownst to me at the time was that the other members of the casket team were also awakened at that same hour and was told to pack up. I got shipped off to Europe. Others got shipped off to Asia. Others went to Africa. Others Others went to four winds around the world and it wasn't until these gentlemen brought us together after 51 years and that's where the story begins because what we believed at the time that had taken place at Andrews Air Force Base, at Bethesda Naval Hospital, at the White House, at St. Matthew's Cathedral, and then to Arlington National Cemetery really didn't happen the way the government had told the American people and told us at the same time. And that's why when William asked me to do this book with him, the name of the book is Betrayal. And if you purchase it, along with Jim's book, you will receive a autographed photo of the casket team at the last journey up to the gravesite of president john f kennedy that's part of the carrot so to speak but as william stated the way this odyssey happened it started at andrews air force base when we were told that there were two teams, that our responsibility was to remove the remains from the elevator truck when it came down. And as you remember in the photos that you observed, as we proceeded to take the remains off the elevator truck, we were mugged literally by Secret Service agents, by FBI agents, And it wasn't until 51 years later that we understood why. They didn't want us to touch that casket. Because at that time, and there's no doubt in my mind or other members of the casket team's mind, that the casket was empty. And if we had allowed that to take place the way it did when we handed over the casket or when it was taken from us at Andrews Air Force Base, We let go and the casket dropped and almost hit the tarmac, as you see in the photographs. And if that had happened, we would not be sitting here today because we would have known that the casket was empty. But it wasn't, again, known to us until 51 years later because we shadowed the motorcade from Andrews Air Force Base to Bethesda Naval Hospital. It never stopped. Once we got to Bethesda Naval Hospital, we chased the ambulance around the grounds three times until we finally caught up with it at the loading dock of the administration building adjacent to the morgue. And again, we know it was the same casket because it had a dent in the top and the handle on the right-hand side. But as Jim later pointed out, God bless his heart, <laughs> that while we were in the air shadowing the motorcade from Andrews Air Force Base, the president was already on the autopsy table and we hadn't even landed yet. So I'm gonna leave it right there and allow Jim, and later on you'll be able to ask me any question you want. And the things that I don't know I will tell you But I'm not here to convince you of anything. I'm here to tell you an eyewitness account of what took place over those four days. What you believe is on you. I'm telling you not just my story, but of the casket team's story. It's not that we collaborated together because we hadn't seen each other in 51 years. And there's a reason for that. There's a reason to be awakened at 5:30 in the morning and told to pack up. And never having the opportunity to say goodbye, to say what experience did you have during those four days? They wanted us, they wanted to split us up so we would not have an opportunity to discuss what had taken place. And understand this: when you're in the military, people will ask me. And I'm sure there are people in this audience that will say well didn't you see this or didn't you look over here and see that. You need to understand and those of you that have been in the military know that when you're in formation you're looking straight ahead. You're looking at the back of the guy's head in front of you. So. Just to stop you from asking me that question, you know, did I see this? I'm telling you what I observed and I also want you to understand that as an 18 year old individual that had to be signed into the military by his father under false pretenses, my story, the casket team story, we never got together, We never talked for 51 years until we had the reunion, and that's when Jim shattered our dream of what we thought was our service to the country and to our Commander-in-Chief. And when you read in the book, when you read in the book, you will start to see how not just ourselves, but General Godfrey McHugh, who was the Air Force Chief of Staff to President Kennedy. <clears throat> it's, understanding, it's understandable why now I understood what he meant when we took the bronze casket off the elevated truck. He shoved us aside, but in shoving us aside, he made a statement, and I remember like it was yesterday. His statement was, this is my Commander-in-Chief, not that MF. This is my Commander-in-Chief. And I will explain to you during the Q&A what he meant by that. Jim?
2: Okay, thank you. I guess I'm responsible for Hubie's shocking moments. Basically, uh, William and I recently uh, completed a book. Uh, the book is my memories of what—pardon me—what I, I um, participate in, what I actually did uh, at the autopsy, uh, and I was one of two assistants. Uh, Paul O'Connor was was the other one. And Paul and I were called about 3:30 in the afternoon. Uh, We were told that the president had been assassination, had actually been shot, and that he had died. And that we were to report to the morgue because Paul and I had the duty uh, and prepare the morgue in case the president's body was sent to us for autopsy. This was, at that time, it was just kind of a precautionary type thing. Uh, Paul and I went to the the morgue, uh, we opened the morgue, uh, went in somewhere between 3.30 and and 4 o'clock. And we began to prepare for an autopsy, a routine autopsy, which which we did every duty night. And um, about... I guess uh, we were probably in there an, uh, an hour or so, I'm sure. And then uh, Dr. Boswell, I believe, it was came in and said that we were going to get the president's body for autopsy. Uh, it, we changed uh, our routines to the fact is that normally we would label our specimen uh, jars that we took Tissue samples for microscopic, and placed them in the jars. We would put the the name, the tissue, and the autopsy number on. It. And the autopsy number was something that was preprinted in in the log, but we had a stamp that that sequenced the same number, I believe three or five times, and we used that to stamp uh, toe tags uh, identification find paperwork that came came to us, Uh, most of our autopsies were brought from the hospital itself, so we had paperwork with it, and and, uh, we stamped that with the autopsy number. But we were told uh, to remove the labels with the names, uh, with the president's name on it, and only use the autopsy number for identification. We were also told not to log the body into the, the morgue log uh this was unusual uh in the military everything is specific and it's actually done that way or you suffer consequences and um at at that point in time uh paul and i uh prepared for the autopsy we we put out the instrumentation uh prepared the solutions and so forth uh the what we call the bucket brain our brain bucket we put formalin in it and place the gauze uh sling over the top of it um approximately now i would like to say this i was in that morgue from three o'clock to approximately eight thirty, nine 9 o'clock the next day um I never looked at a clock. Uh, I, I, what I had, what, what I had to do was, was fairly intense. Uh, I had to uh, listen to the pathologist. Uh, I had to do what they asked uh, and observe what they were doing. And uh, so I stood at the right shoulder of the president's body almost all night. And the body came in approximately at 6.30. Now that time frame, uh, I had to have a timeline in writing the book. That The time frame uh, I took from Dennis David. Uh, I took that time frame as opposed to other time frames that that exist out there that came from government sources from other individuals and so forth and I, but i chose this one because it was the most realistic to me plus it was collaborated by uh, sergeant bojan who was in charge of the marine security detail there and that's the time that he filed his uh, action port to his superiors and then several years ago we were contacted by an individual, uh, Dr. J. Scott, who told us that uh, he was an orthopedist. He said that he was doing a residency at Bethesda during the uh, time that the autopsy was done, and he happened to be the officer of the day for the hospital. Now, to explain this, there were actually two commands at Bethesda uh one was the hospital command under uh, Captain Canada the other one was the medical school uh, underneath uh, Captain Stover my command was the medical school and and we were responsible uh, actually the the laboratory the pathologist uh, the school and so forth were all under the command uh, the the of uh, Captain Stover. So we had a separate uh, officer of the day. We had a separate NCO. Uh, Dennis David was basically that non-commissioned officer that was in charge that night. And uh, Dennis was the one that was told to put together a detail to unload the casket. Now, I think that that order was actually a misstep because of miscommunications, because I think that was ordered by, by Captain Canada because he was under the assumption that, that the hospital command was going to be in charge of the autopsy. Uh, which was a natural assumption because Pumphrey's uh, funeral home had a contract with the hospital. When we finished with the autopsies, we would uh, put the the bodies in, in the cold room. Pumphrey's would come, pick those up, take them, and, and do the cosmetics and, and actually prepare the body for burial. So I'm sure that that Captain Canada just naturally assumed and was trying to be proactive with all of this. But anyway, the body itself came in, again, around six thirty, 630, six thirty-eight, somewhere like that. Uh, the striking thing about it to me was the fact is that the casket that came, the body came in was so plain. It was. It was what we called a shipping casket or a transport casket. And uh, it it seemed a little strange to me that the president's uh, body would be placed in something so so mundane, so simple. But anyway, it was in a shipping casket. Came in. It was not brought into the. Uh, Moored proper by Dennis's team, even though, uh, according to Dennis, they unloaded it from a hearse, a black hearse in, in the back. And uh, his team brought it to the, the anteroom, which is where the coal, room, uh, coal boxes were, and placed it apparently on the floor. It was picked up outside of there, brought into the anteroom, and then, and then brought into the morgue. It was brought in by uh, individuals in dark suits. Uh, A couple of uh, flag officers uh, were also accompanying. Flag officers are actually admirals or generals. Um, It was placed on the floor in the morgue, uh, partially between the the two tables. Paul went over. Paul and I started over, but then there were so many people there, and it was such a small page, I, I, I stopped, I stayed at the, at the table. Paul went over, took the body, uh, helped remove the body from the casket. They brought it over and put it on the table in front of me. At that time, uh, Dr. Boswell uh, thanked everybody and asked them to leave. At that time, everyone left the, the mort. And then Dr. Boswell told Paul and I, don't unwrap the body, don't let anyone in, and he left. And I just naturally assumed that he was going up to the to the laboratory to talk with Dr. Humes. They were going to, going to come up with a plan uh, What how they were going to do the autopsy. Uh, approximately 15, maybe 20 minutes later, uh, dr boswell returned first uh he came into the morgue uh he motioned for me to come and help him we remove the wrappings from the body not the head the head remained wrapped we placed a sheet over the the body uh from his waist down and then we began to do what what we could consider the face sheet the face sheet was nothing more than a military uh, form that had uh, drawings the body drawings on it had uh, places for the weights measurements Uh, we placed the the wounds, the surgical cut-downs, old wounds, the back wounds, uh, the appendix scars and so forth on that sheet. Normally, uh, the assistant, the people who were assisting, which would have been Paul and myself that night, we would have actually looked for scars and so forth, and the pathologist, if they were involved in it, would write in uh, the results, okay? This wasn't done that way. Dr. Boswell actually examined the body and dictate to me what to put in there. Now, it's not nefarious that he did that. It was just because what he, I could see what he was doing. I he you know I'm sure he just wanted the hands on and you know because the responsibility that that he had was great, and he wanted to make sure that he actually accomplished it. But anyway, so we proceeded with that. When we were almost finished with it, Dr. Humes came back in, and he had four flag officers following him. Uh, I didn't, at that time, I didn't know who these people were. Um, As they came into the morgue proper from the ante room, uh, the flag officers went into the gallery, and they came down to the end of the gallery and stood at the rail uh, adjacent to the autopsy table where I was and the body was.
0: We'll pause here and continue listening to James Jenkins in episode 94. Thank you for listening to episode 93 of JFK, The Enduring Secret.